The Anton Savage Show with Nifty Business on News Talk. Well, you may find yourself about to head out to the sideline of a pitch. You may currently be standing on the sideline of a pitch, roaring at some group of junior Bs or your own kids or somebody else's kids or the referee. Ireland is, of course, populated with people who find themselves involved in amateur sport, whether it is GAA, whether it is boxing, whether it's hurling, whether it's uh, soccer. And there's a new RTE um, series called Secrets from the Sidelines, and it's looking into the scenes behind Irish amateur sport, and it's uh, seen through the eyes of a handful of Irish sporting coaches. One of those featuring in it is former Olympic boxer Kenneth Egan, and he joins me this morning. Morning, Kenneth. How are you, Anton? How are you keeping? I'm good. Can I get to the really vital stuff first, Kenneth? I knew you for an awful long time through commentary as Kenny Egan. And I've, yeah. I've reflected on this and thought, did, did everybody just mutually get that wrong and call you a name that wasn't yours, or did you decide to abandon Kenny? No, it was always Kenneth. Kenneth was my name. Um, the Kenny name just clicked after the Olympic Games because there's a few lads on the team from Belfast, Paddy Barnes, and he would call me Kenny. And that was just the start of that. So that only happened after Beijing, but it's Kenneth. It always has been Kenneth. My mum calls me Kenneth, and that's the most important. <laughs> <laughs> well, if yeah. Mrs. Egan is doing it, we'll follow her lead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's always been Kenneth. Tell us a little bit about the show. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting piece around, you know, the, 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 the work that goes on behind the scenes, if you like, you know, coaches and how, how they're unsung heroes. The work they do, opening up clubs, setting up uh, pitches, setting up boxing clubs, making the sandwiches for the visitors, the cups of tea, you know, being there as a mentor and as a, like a, a, a second, a third parent even, to the young kids that come into boxing clubs. Now, we're talking about the boxing clubs in particular, you know, from these areas, um, these rough areas, these 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 areas that are are you know have been have been deprived of of funding as well, and and these clubs have, have been a shining light to get kids off the streets, get them in, to get them get them involved in something positive for an hour and a half every evening. Keep why, them out of trouble. When you watch them, Kenneth, why do they do it? I'm sorry to put this in context. I remember years ago when I was racing cars, you had this bunch of marshals without whom the event couldn't take place. We were utterly dependent on them. They were the, the people who were responsible for safety. They were the ones who would get you out of the car if there was a major crash. But I always kept looking at them thinking, what's in it for them to stand in the rain in Mondello or Kirkistown for eight hours at a stretch for no money? Same thing with the amateur coaches. What's in it for them? Yeah, you're right. And look, not every person is going to be a good amateur coach. You know, not every not high-performance athlete is going to be a good amateur coach. But I just think it's, it's, it's built into them where you just want to do something positive in their local area. Uh, and like like I said, opening up clubs at all hours, setting up camp, um, treating these kids like, like they are their own, you know. And just and it's from those tricky years, you know, you get kids that will come into a club that mightn't have all the talent in the world. We just showed them a bit of attention and a bit of encouragement and a bit of a bit of a bit of interest. Amazing things can happen. You know, and with these with these clubs that are based all over the country and all sports it's just keeping these kids interested in some kind of sport through those tricky years of probably 10 to 16, 17. And they're part of a community. They make friends. They learn discipline. They learn, they learn uh, determination. They learn, you know, they learn to push themselves. They learn about winning. They learn, they learn about losing. And that builds great character. You know, well, and that's what it's about, you know, to steer these kids on then to bigger and better things when they, get, when they leave the sport. 
Let me ask you about that because that's, and boxing is often cited as an example of that. Boxing is often cited as the example where, I mean, a la Foreman, a la Tyson, where you take somebody who's having a difficult time, maybe getting into street fights, you channel that and they end up uh, being successful and happy. If you look at your personal experience, having read and listened to you over the years, boxing doesn't seem to have been a panacea to your bigger issues in terms of how happy you were. It doesn't seem to have solved the problems that you were going through at the time. Boxing, for me, was a great outlet. And if I didn't have, didn't have, didn't have boxing, I don't know where it'd be today. And that's being honest with you, because we grew up in Neilstown. It was a rough area at the time, back in the early 90s. Lots of drugs, lots, lots of crime. But the Neilstown Boxing Club was a safe haven for me and my brothers. Um, and without Neilstown Boxing Club, I dread to think where I would have ended up. So from the early years, boxing kept me on the straight and narrow. It kept me part of a, of a, of a group of people that I enjoyed being with. You know, the coach that I had at the time, Noel Humpson, was a great mentor and a great, a great father figure to me. You know, he was brilliant in the club. And throughout those years, and they, those are the tricky years, but then as I got older then, I got part of the high-performance team and, and all those things, my, 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 my IQ developed as a boxer and I got better and better and better. But, when the final bell rang, as we all know, you know, I struggled with that whole transition from sport life into the real world. And I struggled with that because I never had a plan B. And I do say to kids, you know, when I'm speaking to them, young, young adults, late teens, what does retirement look like to you? You know, and they're looking at me like I've 10 heads. But when they transition out of the sport, they need to have a, a, something, a plan B. Because it's very, very hard to kind of set up again after you walk away from the sport. If you've had a long, successful career like I had, it is hard to step away. So not everyone's going to be an Olympian. Not everyone's going to be a world medalist. Not everyone's going to be a European medalist or an Irish champion. But you need to have that plan B. And I think that's important for especially kids that are looking to try and get to an Olympic Games or to a, a major. That they need to have that plan B. That other side hustle, if you like. That when they do make it's the very plan hard, B, though, Kenneth. I mean, if, if you're yeah, an elite sports hard. person and you're coming out and you're saying, I'm going to be, what, 30, depending on sport, but 30, 35, maybe 40 at a push. And yeah, I'm yeah. effectively going to have to start almost again competing with 19-year-olds, 20-year-olds. That's extraordinarily difficult. Of course it is. But like, that's why it needs to be spoken about. You know, these kids need to have a, a dual career. End of story. Dual career is very, very important. And I've heard some athletes say, well, I haven't got time to study. Well, they're only a high-performance boxer would train maximum four hours a day, two in the morning, two in the evening. Five days a week, six days a week. So... There is plenty of time to walk around the online courses, wherever it is. There's plenty. If you want to do something, you will do it. So this, that's no excuse to have, oh, well, I was too busy training. That's nonsense. You know, but there needs to be made some, some kind of a, a rule brought in where athletes that are aspiring to be, to be the best of the best, they need to have that dual career. And they need to be given options and being made take these exams so they can further educate themselves. So when they do make the transition, and not all will have a long career into their 40s or into their late 20s. They could be deselected. They could leave through injury. Whatever it could be. They need to have that, that little bit of a, a fallback. So explain that's then, very, from, very because you said about the, the difficulty for you when, when you finished the um, professional uh, competition, that that's when it, it set in. H- how did it manifest? What was your experience of the end of that kind of hot housing and the release into the real world? I remember after the Olympic Games was the start of it, I think, when I dropped to my knees in the Olympic final. You know, and I said, said, what the hell do I do now? You know, because my, my, my ambitions had been achieved. And I was saying, geez, what, what else do I do now? What, what? And I kicked the can down the road for two years amongst all the other madness I was getting involved in with the drinking and the, and the, the binge drinking. So 
So I wasn't really making any decisions. I wasn't really being responsible for those two years. And I don't remember much of those two years, to be honest with you. You know, it was bits and pieces. I still tried to compete at the highest level, but it was, you know, I was won a medal here and there, but I wasn't, I wasn't the full, true self. And then when the, the final bell rang, I suppose, when I had enough for two years later, that's when reality hit me, you know. I had to stop drinking, I had to get my life in order, and I had to find a new identity. And that was but very, very how hard. How are you able to drink like that and fight at the same time? I've yeah, never understood I know. how you can overlap. It's fascinating, isn't it, how the body can, can kind of juggle um, born to candle. I was born at the candle at both ends and it just obviously it wasn't working for me you know but but the fact that you were still able to be in Italy I mean it's a, a bit like when you read Paul McGrath's story when he talks about the sheer yeah. amount of alcoholism and still being able to perform you know in boxing, some instances literally drunk on the pitch boxing boxing is a hard enough sport as it is when you're sober and you're training very very hard and you're living a healthy lifestyle but when you're coming in after a weekend or a week of madness and coming back onto the floor and trying to spar where you're seeing four lads in front of you instead of one it's it's not it's not healthy. It's not funny, and it, it, it wouldn't be something that I would I would I would uh, I would want someone to do, you know. But th- that was just a, that was a, the the life I was living. I was living a double life, you know, the total carnage, then getting back into the high performance and trying to train and get myself back into shape for competition. And that over those two years was just the binges were getting longer, the competition training sessions were getting shorter because I I couldn't fit them in. And look, it was just a disaster. Those two years were just a hell on earth, and they were supposed to be. The two years that I was supposed to, you know, would be welcomed home as a as a national hero with an Olympic medal around me, now. and you know, the two years that I was rather just eliminate out of my life. To be honest with you, but it was well, great learning. That, that, I, I yeah. don't, I don't mean this, but to suggest that you should be. It's just a genuinely open question. When you look back at it, are you embarrassed by it? I'm no, I'm not embarrassed by anything. You know, um, I was very open and honest about my recovery. Um, I've, the amount of people that I've helped since. I opened up my own struggles have been tenfold. I've, I've, I've got rid of the shame, got rid of the, you know, that's all gone now, and I'm, I'm quite content in my own skin now. Um, I've made mistakes. Who hasn't? You know? Um, and I've moved on now. And the life I have now is a life beyond my wildest dream. Being able to get out of bed in the morning, put me two feet in the ground, tell myself I'm a good person, because I am. And when I go to bed at night time, I say thank you. And that thank you is a, I'm full of gratitude for the life I have today because I'm not drinking a day at a time. Now, is that... I have to ask it because I think there will there will be some, obviously, who, who may take a cynical response to that and say, ah, yeah, that is, that is the language of recovery. Nobody who feels the joy and pride and celebration of winning an Olympic gold thinks that a life where you just get out of bed and go about your normal day and go to bed happy in the evening is the equal of that. Is it genuinely the case? And you know, what I'm trying to say to you is that Olympic medal, that, that achievement was an achievement in time. Two weeks in August in 2008, I boxed out of my skin to win that medal. And don't get me wrong, it was an amazing achievement. When I look back when I'm 90 years of age, sitting in my chair, talk to the great grandkids, I'll tell them that. But what I have today, and the life that I was living after those Olympic Games with the drinking, what I have today, when I was about to bed in the morning, my little eight-year-old has never seen me drunk, never seen me anyway intoxicated. Because I was sober long before she came along. For me to be there for her and my wife and my family and to turn up on time to appointments and not let people down and, and look people in the eye, they're all, these things outweigh any Olympic medal for me. Because I know where the drinker would have brought me. I would have been dead. I wouldn't be caught to you on this phone if I hadn't stopped drinking. So the Olympic medal, although it's great in its merit and its achievement on its own, my sobriety beats any Olympic medal. 
Now, explain to me how you get young athletes to understand that. Because where we started was talking about the, the amateur athletes and the people who support them. And most young kids, when they go into sport, it's sacrifice anything to get to the best. It, it's an aspiration to win the, whether it's the cups, the medals, anything else. Can you get, could you have gotten a young Kenneth Egan to understand that that balance in life, a, a little girl who looks up to you and who you never have to be embarrassed in front to, in front of, is the equal of the other stuff? Or do you have to age to be able to understand that? Yeah, of course. And look, when you look at young athletes coming into boxing clubs or whatever club it is, you only have them for an hour and a half that evening, right? Three times a week. So you don't know what they're going home to. You don't know what kind of uh, situations they're in, what kind of circle of friends they have. So there's so many distractions out there for young kids. And then you look at the kid itself as, a, as an individual. What are their aspirations? Do they want to be county level? Do they want to win a, a, a provincial? You know, or do they want to step outside and, and be champion of the country? You know, so there's so many different levels of... There's, there's boxers there that were very happy to win a senior title and bring it back to the club. And, and that's the end of it. You know, where I, I won a senior title, but I wanted more. So it all depends on what kind of level the, the child is at and where they see themselves what kind of hunger they have. And they could have a, a, more of an interest in education or, you know, computers or science or whatever it is. And you encourage that as well. You don't just say, no, no, you're going to be a high-performance boxer. That's not, that's not healthy either. You know, so you need to let the child make their own decision, but encourage them in, in whatever path they actually choose, choose to decide to do, you know. Well, Secrets from the Sidelines is on on Monday the 9th of October. It's on at 9.35 on RTE1. One final thing before I let you go on this, Kenneth. Whatever about the, the young people themselves... What about the, the parents who, whether they be coaches or whether they be uh, sideline supporters, who are channeling their own failed ambitions through some poor <laughs> seven-year-old? What do you do about yeah. them? Well, I do hear that in the, box, in the national stadium, people shout from the crowds, cursing at the ref and all this type of thing. You know, and I do feel embarrassed. I do feel embarrassed for the poor kid that's in the ring because they have a job to do and it's hard enough for them getting into the ring. Never mind looking over that mama dad. Of course, and at the referee. So look, it's it's emotion, isn't it? It's human emotion, and it it, it triggers an awful lot of things in, in probably failed careers of of adults, you know. But there's a time and a place for screaming and shouting, but I don't think it's 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 deserved towards the referees or the or the other coaches, you know. And they do need to keep it down a little bit and let the child do what they have to do because they only listen to the coach in the corner, not listen to the parents out in the in the, in the, in the crowd, you know. But it, it it does get a little bit heated already, and that's just. I suppose that's the human emotion. Well, we'll keep our eyes open for it on, on Monday the 9th. So, Secrets on the Sidelines, Monday the 9th of October, 9.35 on RT1. Kenneth Egan, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Cheers. The Anton Savage Show. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at 9. On News Talk.